Welcome to the Revenue Blueprint. This is not another sales podcast on tips and tactics. Instead, we focus on unfiltered stories from founders and early stage sales leaders on what it takes to build a successful revenue team. If you get just a little bit of value from this, we ask that you pay it forward by liking, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast. All right, let's get into the episode. back to our episode of the Revenue Blueprint. No guest today, but we do have a couple of topics we want to jump into. I'll start today. I think there's something that you see all the time online about how people buy from people and relationships are so important in sales. And this had me thinking about that this week because I had a lead come in through a prior relationship. And basically where I netted out is that relationships don't close deals, but they open doors because this company is not going to buy from me just because they know me. It helped me get in the door. Their soul was able to refer me to the person doing the initial due diligence and that got me the inbound intro call. But just because they know me and I have a good relationship with the CEO is not going to be the reason that they buy from me. The product's going to have to fit. And so I think there's like, there's a bunch of these sales sayings and things like that. Buy from people. Right. People <laughs> buy from people. No, no shit. Of course they do, right? Like that's why they have salespeople. And, and yeah, but... But these days, with everyone going towards product-led growth, I've seen a lot of organizations try to do everything they can to avoid hiring salespeople. And I get the cultural issues, I guess, the supposed cultural issues of toxic sales teams, the costs associated with them. But I think it does go back to, I mean, it's a silly saying, but you need, there's like some trust built there with a human that can answer their questions right. that you're not going to get when you go into a website and it's like, just sign up for our product for $80,000 a year, put in your right. credit card. Like, right. Okay. They're going to buy from you. Ultimately, they're, they're making a decision based on many variables, right? The relationship could be part of it because having that inherent trust is helpful, no doubt. But still, your product or service has to fit their needs, especially more now than ever as people are more discerning with budget. So isn't the relationship table stakes, not being a dick, right? Being helpful, building that trust, likability. Although would someone buy your product if the salesperson's kind of like unfriendly? They're like, I don't like the salesperson, but this product is great. You still probably buy it. That's true. I mean, you, you might lose the deal. It doesn't there, help you. There are plenty of people that hold grudges be of businesses because they didn't like how they were treated from one person within the business, right? You, I'm sure we've all been there with like a restaurant or like some local service provider that they treated us badly one time, so we never went back. The same thing happens in B2B sales and enterprise deals. It's less likely to affect the deal, but it certainly can blow it if it's bad enough. Okay, but your point, just because they like you, they're not going to give you money. Right, exactly. Like the, <laughs> I guess, bringing back to what I was saying originally, is like the relationship matters, but the all this stuff about people buying from people and that being like the main reason people are buying is like rarely the case, I think. it's It will get you intro conversations, but it's not going to close the deal. Well, and soon people are going to buy from AI, so people right. won't even matter. And then AI will buy from AI. Yeah, we'll just have AI chatbot relationships and see how well those go. No, I love that point, man. I think that's, uh, you see the relationship salespeople put too much time into the relationship, not into the qualification or not into the actual value articulation or kind of product market fit of that sale. And they wonder why they didn't get the sale. And I I think I did that a lot young, early in my career. I, you know what? I had a, a guy that used to work for me and I'd ask him how things were going with a client and he'd be like, oh yeah, I've got a great relationship with them. Like, I'm not too worried about this. Like we're on a texting basis. It's like, we're, we have really good rapport. Like, well, how can we have him fucking close the deal? And he would, he was mistakenly treating the banter and rapport he had with the stakeholder as progress in the deal. And it wasn't actually that at all. And I think that, you're right. That probably is something, a mistake that many people make early on in their careers in sales is that they see 
some happy conversations and they feel really good about it. But as jaded salespeople, you and I know nothing <laughs> matters until that, that document. Well, happy, right? There's this phrase, happy. I'm sure you've heard it. Yep. Right. And I would have a senior person and a junior person in training on the same call, right? I did a lot of mentoring when I was managing and, or I had a lot of senior people mentoring junior people and they'd listen to the same call and get off and ask the junior person how that went. The junior person's like, oh, that's great. Said all the right things. Like, that's a great opportunity. And the senior person's like, yeah, that's closed loss. Like, I won't invest more time with that person. And it's like, wait, like how can two people on the same call get two different things? And it was like, the senior person knows that person on the other end was probably too junior to have any influence on the deal and only could say positive and optimistic things. It just was all happy. And they didn't have much confidence that they could even get them the table with the stakeholders. And so you see that with the senior people versus the junior people. And sometimes, and I think senior people realize buyers are often, you're like, man, that guy was a dick. He's probably going to buy. Maybe not like probably going to buy, but is like really qualifying on this call to see if we're worthy of their purchase. Right. Right. The junior people that are all happy don't have to do that. They don't have to be kind of hardcore. Whereas the senior business buyers don't have time to mess around, don't care about building rapport, have a lot of tough questions that might leave the junior person being like, they're never going to buy. That guy's a jerk. And the senior person's like, they're a buyer. They're very serious. Those are buying questions because they're not nice questions. They're like getting to the realness of it. And so it's like, again, it kind of goes back to the relationship stuff is like, you don't necessarily have to have a relationship. <laughs> how, let me ask you tactically, how have you been able to coach happy years? That's a good question. Thank you for putting on me. Thank <laughs> you for putting me on the spot with that. I think it's like what you're trying to get to. Like, who are you talking to? And can they get you to where you're trying to get to, right? And you're trying to get to moving the deal forward, access to power. Like, have they purchased before? Have they signed before? This guy, Jeff Hoffman, that I hope we have on the podcast is a kind of world-renowned sales trainer. I was fortunate to meet him early in his training career after he left a company that I had just joined as an SDR and he came in and did some training. And one of the things he would say is he would bring a paper order form to meetings and he'd hand it to people. And a person who signs things is comfortable holding a pen and looking at a piece of paper and not worried that the pen might actually go to the paper and the end in a signature. And a junior person or someone who's never signed anything before doesn't touch order forms. Right. And so it's like that type of thing of like, have they bought this before? Have they signed off on something? What's the last thing they bought? There's right. a lot of those questions that like quickly identify whether this person is has power, has access to power, is serious, or is just saying like, oh, that's really cool. That button's wonderful. Yeah, this all sounds so good. Like, yeah, kind so of like cutting to the truth. And I think for junior people, those questions feel awkward because you're kind of challenging their authority and their ego. What I love about unjaded salespeople is they can say it with a lot of smile and a charm. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you, what was the last thing you purchased? Like you can couch it in charm and some crutches of like, oh, I wouldn't be doing my job as a salesperson if I didn't ask that question. Yeah, I think. But to ask those tough questions that are perceived to be awkward by junior people, but senior people won't leave a call without asking them. Yeah. And I think to level people up for that, there's a few different things I've seen work. I think there is role plays where the who they're selling to is turning into like the yes person and yesing them to death, right? And getting them to add, training them to actually teach the more difficult questions. I think they're like, then there's also just like the contrarian mindset thing of basically like the old debate team style, like, hey, we've got an argument. You're going to take one side and you're going to take the other side. And putting the happy years people on the more difficult side of that. And you can make a like your own business case about it to make it more practical, but making sure that they are 
getting reps in asking the actual probing questions, touching the nerve and getting to the things that will actually make progress in the deal versus just think, oh yeah, that was a great call. I'll get back to you soon. For sure. The role playing and I love to just be the biggest jerk ever in a role play. And to be like, do you think anyone's ever going to treat you like that? Right. It like numbs people. Right. <laughs> like no one on a cold, like if you're cold call role playing, no one actually says, go fuck yourself. And I go, maybe one in a million and one in the right. thousand. And it's just not that common. You do that a few times in a role play. That's the worst thing that happened. It's like, all right, now what are you afraid of? Nothing. Like it. So it's the same thing with those questions. Yeah. Like, they're gonna be like, How dare you ask such a direct question to challenge my authority? Anybody who would say something like that is not going to really buy your stuff. <laughs> like that's an right. insane. Like that person's insane. Like, right. But, all right. Let's move on to one other topic. I know you recently gave a riveting performance as a moderator and some presentation for Point Nine Ventures. And yeah, everyone has been telling you that. <laughs> the internet's a buzz. Yeah, I heard like every people on the streets of Boulder are asking for your autograph. It's been yeah, crazy. It's but, exhausting. But I think, right, like you, you talk a lot about things that can be damaging to early stage sales teams. So unpack that a little bit. What are some of the most common themes you're seeing? Yeah, I'll just focus on the one today that I've been talking to or I spend a lot of time on and it's misset expectations, right? With early sales teams. And those misset expectations are usually around goals. And I look at them, well, there's kind of three categories. Well, two categories. There's goals, right? And KPIs and compensation linked to those. And then there's jobs to be done, right? So the first one is, Hiring an eight to be like, hey, we have so many inbound leads. You're just going to be closing deals. It's going to be great. And then they get there and you're like, okay, cool. So you're going to be cold calling. It's like, that's how you ruin a relationship. If the person who comes in doesn't expect to be cold calling and you've misset those expectations. And right. I think it's often done. It's done a lot. It's done sometimes with deviance to like lure people in. So once they accept the job, you make them do a thing they didn't believe. Now that's toxic and those companies fail, but it's also done like accidentally, wishful thinking. Oh, we have plenty of leads. It's like, okay, well, what happens when those leads dry up when you hire more AEs? Or what happens if there's a lull in the leads? What is that AE going to do? So I think there's misled expectations about jobs to be done, right? When someone joins. So I will overemphasize, you will be cold calling in week two, right? right. You will be, this is your job, right? To really make sure it's clear that if they come in thinking it's going to be something else, there's no misset expectations. I am very deliberate in it. And when you start to do it, if you don't want to do it or don't plan to do it or not good at it, let's talk about that now. Because if you accept the job and then you do it or you and you refuse to do it or don't want to, you're going to be let go. Like making that really clear with jobs to be done is critical. And I think a lot of people are naive or, you know, first time founders or first time B2B sales founders don't really realize what jobs to be need to be done. They're like, oh, we hired a salesperson and that salesperson has misconceptions about what they're doing when they arrive. The, I think, yeah, I think it's a problem I've seen a bunch over the years, right? You almost, you want to anti-sell them or basically set the expectations really high early on or very clearly, I think it's more important, not necessarily unrealistic, but just very clearly of what actually needs to be done to get from point A to B to C to D, right? All the way along the line. And be even open to be like, this is what we're doing. This is what we believe we need to be do. This may be a possibility that we need to do that too. That may be what your job is because to predict the future in these startups is kind of a fool's errand. So it's like, where is this actually going to go? And so to really set the expectations around that. So if things change, they're not like, I don't do that, dude. Like, right. That's not going to work out. So it's the jobs to be done expectations, and then it's the goals and KPIs. And I think that's the one where I see the most mistakes or also many mistakes, which kind of is heartbreaking because it's one we can control. So there's two types that I see is top down and bottom up, right? So now you've raised capital. You've already beat the odds. That's awesome. Now, right? 
Now you're going to venture scale. You need to triple, double, double your revenue, annual revenue, or triple, double your revenue, right? So you're trying to get that so that you can get to kind of this escape velocity towards 100 million in revenue, which makes you, you know, a valued at well over a billion dollars. It puts you in the category of a massive acquisition that makes the investors happy, or you can IPO, which is an even better path, right? So to get to those revenue goals, those, now that you have the capital, what's the goal for this year? Maybe it's two, three, four, five million revenue. And so now you need to hire these salespeople, but you've gotten to this revenue over several years through different kind of relationships and you haven't really refined the model yet. And you're bringing in some early sales found, founding AE, sales pioneer, go to market account executive, whatever you want to call it to kind of figure these things out. But now you have this massive goal that you kind of signed up for by taking venture capital and your investors are putting some level of pressure on you to get to. Now, I think good investors are like, let's figure out a strong foundation on which to scale. Other investors are like, we got to get to that 3x revenue multiple so you can raise more money in 18 months and we can get a markup for our fund, right? And the valuation, right. blah, blah, blah. So that's all happening, but it doesn't need to be the sales rep's goal out of the gates. And what I mean by that is, so now all of a sudden you've hired your first one or two account executives and they need to generate 2 million in revenue this year to get to that goal. You've never generated a million dollars in revenue or euros in revenue ever before this in one year. But now because you have salespeople and the goal is two million, they each have a million dollar quota and they need to get to these goals. So now that's their quota and good luck. And you don't have the mechanisms and the machinery and the momentum in place to get them to the million dollar quota. So now all of a sudden they come in at 600, which maybe 1.2 million is great. Maybe you should have hired three or four or five reps. But like, because you did this top down, that default came their quota, their company goes became their quota, and they came up short. And now everyone's disappointed, even though 600K is the most revenue anyone's ever generated in one year at the company and is actually quite impressive. But to everyone looking at it, it's a failure. Yeah, I think the that this is basically the example that people give when they say that goals are built in a spreadsheet and they're not built with enough context, right? Where companies people with their MBAs or like whatever. I'm, I'm hating on people with MBAs because I think they're a bunch of nerds. For the most part. We'll edit this out, our MBA. Oh, yeah, I mean, the problem, my only issue with getting your MBA is it's, you think about things very academically and not necessarily with yeah. context, right? In this exact sense. And, and so I think this happens sometimes where someone builds the goal based on some financial models or data they were given. That data doesn't have enough context. They don't understand that business unit or like the particular sales team well enough. And what happens is they build a goal based on just like the numbers they see in front of them, but without that context. And there's not enough scrutiny over those goals to determine what's actually feasible. And people don't particularly early stage founders don't spend enough time critiquing those goals and the they come down from the VCs who they trust and it just gave them money on the expectation that they would hit these awesome growth goals, but it's right. like optimistic at best, often delusional, not linked to reality. And that's and where reality is where we live. Right. <laughs> and like the VC model is take a hundred bets and hopefully two or three of them crush and you don't really care if the rest die because Never. those two or three. Just, they care. I don't know. I'm part of this whole <laughs> engine, but my and, job yeah. is to be realistic, but yes. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not just saying, right. I, I'm invested in a couple of funds myself, but the, the being realistic about like the VC model that's part of it. So you should take their advice, but also understand their motivation, like the same way you would. And I think the right balance is building a foundation on which to reach those awesome goals, but not just come out of the gates, making those goals 
the first people's goals that have to figure things out. And if they don't reach them, everybody fails because that's where this falls apart. Right. The other side is the bottom up goals. What I mean by this, and I saw this a ton a year to 18 months ago when there was a ton of capital coming in and there was a supply and demand issue with salespeople, which basically you had to back in. Well, basically the OTEs of sales reps were, let's say 200 to 300K. And everybody likes the 50-50 model. So let's use a 200K OTE sales rep. Their base salary is 100K. Their variable or commission's 100K. And everybody wants to pay around 10% commission rate. So now all of a sudden they need a million dollar quota. These companies have never done a million dollars in revenue for a sales rep. Let's say they do 800 at the high end or maybe they 600, which is still solid, right? For a 100K sales rep, that work. The economics work, right? But now they need to give them a million dollar quota to get to their commission rate so they can get to their OTE. So I had multiple conversations with companies where I had to come in and help them revise down the quota for the reps, which also revised down their commission. Now, the good news, if you want to call it, is that the market corrected and there wasn't a lot of jobs out there. So reps basically had to take a pay cut on the variable side because their quota had to come down because the model was all built on something that was only done to meet the market rates of these reps but had no reality based into historical data and what the rep would actually end at. So the solution is basically either pay a higher commission rate to get the rep there, higher, pay a higher base salary, which I'm an advocate for, because then it gives you like, it's cushioning this and you don't have to pay the commission rate at an unreasonable you know, percentage or, right? So instead of 50-50, it's 120 base salary, or instead of 100-100, it's 120-80 and the 80 is actually achievable. Right. And then everybody's happy. The economics aren't as lucrative, but it's like that's a better way forward than making a quota that's unachievable just to lure in a rep. Because when you're revising down the quotas and the commission, again, everyone is unhappy again because now we're trying to get to reality. And right. so I think the lesson here is like starting in reality, right? Setting the right expectations on jobs to be done, recognizing that there's really awesome goals for top down business growth expectations. But to get there, the math needs to add up. And then same thing, bottom up for sales reps, the math needs to add up from there. But like it's math and reality is what this is all predicated on. But for some reason, we try to suspend belief or use the reality distortion field, right? Yeah. If you know, it, it is, and I've built many of these comp plans and I've had in-depth conversations on how to figure out the plan that works. And whether you're the founder or the RevOps person or the rep, like cost of sale is really important to everyone in this equation. And that's oftentimes driving this. But if you want to attract and retain the best reps during a time when you're not sure, you're uncertain about the attainability of revenue, you're better off keeping the quota as reasonable as possible. My rule of thumb is like, 80% of the team should have at least a 50-50 shot of getting to revenue, right? getting to quota, right? And like that should be a fair benchmark. If you're, if not enough people are getting to quota, then things are unreasonable, it hurts your reputation internally. And now with the likes of sites like RepView, right, you'll get put on blast pretty quickly. And there's going to be a flight towards companies from the best reps that think they're going a place where things are the most attainable. And yeah. now that people are more informed about this stuff, it's more important than ever to be, what's the word I'm going to be? just intellectually honest with yourself about what the attainability is of your numbers and how it's going to impact the morale on your team. 
Right. And the smart reps should be, are seeking this out and asking those questions and asking the attainment numbers by the other reps, asking to talk to other reps about their quota achievement, like right. really understanding this. And if the, right. And it's kind of a quality assurance. If you're able to trick reps into the role, like probably not that good. Right. Uh, this is a favorite topic of mine where, right. If, yeah, if reps aren't asking those questions or they're willing to take some below market compensation, yeah, you're probably self-selecting for the lower quality rep. So, all right. I think that wraps it for today. Big takeaway today. Jason does not like MBAs. I you know some of my best friends got their MBAs and I encourage, I was like, man, if you guys don't, if you guys don't go join a startup after this and like go put your, all this knowledge you have to good use, then you're wasting your time. They make a lot of money in finance right now. So I don't know that I'm the right person to be critiquing them, but yeah, generally like I know I've learned a lot more in startup environments than I did in big companies or in the classroom. And so that's, I just kind of, I'd rather be experienced. I learned from experiencing things much more than learning about it. Love it. All right. That's a wrap. See you guys later. Peace.